When Ebola comes, um, this is my plight. I used to have a lovely family, but uh, Ebola destroyed most of them. Ebola destroyed my happiness. I lost more than 21 in my family. It was so terrible, as I'm saying. Every day, I receive a call of death. Down here, this one has passed away again. Maybe two or three days, he called for another one. Daniel, Okula has passed away. Maybe three of these, Daniel, your brother has passed, Daniel, your cousin, you know, Daniel, your sister, Daniel, your father. You know, this one is that. This one has passed, this one has passed. Every week we cry, we cry a lot. Cry a lot, cry a lot for over two to three months. We have been crying, burying people, going from place to place. I was not being able to encourage myself. I've tried to courage, but courage don't come. I tried to comfort myself, but I wouldn't found um, courage or comfort because the pain was so um, terrible in me. But um, really, I thank God, I thank God, because if not for God and also for the bridge of hope, I would have lost even my life. I remember I was reading this scripture, Matthew 7, 7, Acts, and you receive, seek, and we find, knock, and open, open to you. I believe in that scripture that if I ask anything to God, I ask for protection, I ask for comfort, the Lord will give me a comfort. All these scriptures gave me the courage not to hang myself, or not to just run away, go into the sea. All these scriptures, they have been helping me to be close to God. If only you be close to God, then, God will also be close to you. Father God, I want to thank you. I worship in you with all my heart, with all my soul, and with all my mind. Because if not for you, Jesus, I would have lost. If not for you, Jesus, I will not be the way I am. I presently. But I thank you, Jesus, for giving me a comfort. In your Father's house, there are many mansions, and I believe with you, Lord, all my families are there, you are with them. So I thank you for their life. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for dying for us. Thank you for saving us. Continue to change us so that we can change others. Bless us so that we can bless others. I thank you again for the bridge of hope. Bless people that can bless us, Lord, so that, Lord, your name will be glory forever in the name of Jesus, Lord. For in Jesus' precious name, I pray. Amen. 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 Daniel's a good friend of mine. He's a worship leader for one of the churches over in Sierra Leone. He's also the chaplain. Um, for, for a couple schools over there, and he just has this infectious personality, just this love for the Lord. I love hanging out with uh, Daniel and just hearing him and, and watching him lead worship. It's incredible. And he kind of gives you a glimpse into what life is like in Sierra Leone. It's tough on everybody. Everybody's been touched by Ebola. Uh, I don't think I've met anybody over there who has not lost someone to Ebola and they've all been touched by war. From 1990 through 2000, there was civil war in the country. There was no education going on in the country at that time. It, it, it was really just a dark, hopeless 
place. When you talk about difficult places in the world, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a country more bad off than Sierra Leone. It's, uh, it has the lowest life expectancy of any country in our world. Uh, it's the most dangerous place in the world for a woman to give birth. The, the percentage of uh, women who died during childbirth is the highest in the world. It's over 70% unemployment. Um, there is nothing nice in the country, okay? You can't go to any, at least not that I've found yet. Haven't been over there several times now. Have not ever found anything nice in the country. It's difficult. Um, but then you go to the church and you see the way they worship. And I am telling you, the joy on their faces, the, the smile, and they sing from a place down deep. And it is true from the children to the teenagers to the adults. It doesn't matter. There, there is just this passion and enthusiasm that comes out when they worship. And you know, it almost got me thinking that in heaven... You know, all the nations are going to be there worshiping, worshiping God, and the angels are going to be going around, and they're just going to be enjoying and smiling as they go from nation to nation and hear the praises sung to Jesus. And, and then they're going to come, and they're going to see the Americans. And they're going to nudge each other, and one's going to say to the other, what's, what's going on with this group? They're, they're, they're singing with their hands down by their sides. Some of them have their hands in their pockets. Some aren't even singing at all. What's going on here? And the other angel is going to say, I don't think the Africans have taught them how to worship yet. Um, because when you're there and you worship with them, there is just this excitement. Um, we talked about Ebola. One of the pastors who I work with, his name's Pastor Pius. So I train two pastors weekly, Pastor Pius and Pastor Paul. And Pastor Pius was just coming into the, into the ministry. He was just a new pastor when Ebola hit. And he told his wife, Mary, I've been called to, to be a pastor. I've got to go and offer encouragement and pray for people who are affected with this virus. And Ebola, it just spreads. It's very contagious. You can't, you can't touch people who have it. But Pius, he tells his wife, Mary, no, I've got to go. I've got to pray. And Mary was pleading with him, no, please don't go, Pius. Please don't go. It's not safe. You know, you're going to get it. And he went anyway and touched people anyway and prayed with people anyway. And, um, and God just spared him. I mean, he just, he's still healthy, going strong. And so it's, it's wonderful being able to partner with him and, and other men like him. And so when I was over there, I was training pastors. There's six pastors that the Bridge of Hope directly works with, so I'm training those six men. I've got friendships with all of them. I taught in their Bible school there and enjoyed um, that opportunity, visited the schools, and, uh, and just seeing the kids worship and everything was very encouraging, very special uh, to me. And then got to preach at Pastor Pius's church on Sunday. And the last time I was there, um, about two years ago, not quite two years ago, uh, they met in this little grass hut. And so, um, and then they took me out to the property after, after the service was over, and we just stood on this dirt, and, and I prayed that there would be a building there for the people to gather and to worship. And so when I went uh, yesterday, there was a building, and, or last week, there was a building where everyone could gather and worship, and so it was just really exciting to see them gathered together in a building, worshiping God, and that place was packed. I mean, it was standing room only. The church has grown. It's really 
um, just expanding. And it's exciting to see. I told Pines, you've already outgrown your building. You know, you got a building last year, and now you've already outgrown it. So he will be planting a church later this year. We, so I was working with him and talking with him about how to plant a church. They're going to be planting a church in a home. His goal is to have that going in, in a village nearby um, in the fall. So, you know, they're, they're moving, they're shaking. He's got a lot of vision. It's exciting to see to be a part of it. And when they come to church, everyone fills in the front row first. There's no, back, there's no back row Baptists in this place, okay? You fill in the front row, and when the front row's filled, you fill in the second row, and then the third row, and, and you want to get there early so that you can get a seat up front because everyone wants to be up front. They want to be as close to the action as possible, and um, so that's it, it just exciting to see that, uh, that passion and that excitement to worship. The lead pastor, there's one pastor who kind of trains the other pastors, or at least oversees them a little bit, and his name's Micah. And I've got a good friendship with Micah. Uh, Micah's the kind of guy, he's always smiling, he's always laughing, he's just fun to be around. And he's come to America before, okay? A church in Washington had him out, and he came to America and just shared a little bit about Sierra Leone and what life was like over there after the... Um, Ebola virus uh, in particular. And so while we were out there, you know, someone asked him, hey, Micah, what was your, what was the most amazing thing that you saw in America? Like what stood out the most? And we thought that he would probably say, at least I was thinking, he's probably going to say like the Space Needle or the Ferris Wheel or the Skyscrapers. He went to a baseball game, maybe the baseball game, but something like this. And he said, uh, you know, the most amazing thing that I saw in America was homeless people. He said, how, how is it that the most wealthiest nation on earth could have so many homeless people? He said, here in my country, he's like, we don't, we don't have much, but if we find someone homeless, we bring them into our homes and they stay with us. And he doesn't just say that. Micah, he's got a family of five, him and his wife and, and three kids, and he has seven other people living with him. Okay, it's a little dirt floor, house, no electricity, no hot water, nothing like that. Um, and he's got his family of five and then seven others. Pastor Pius, he also has seven other people living with him. Pastor Senko, he has 11 other people living with him. Pastor Paul, the other person who I, the other pastor I um, work with, he's the slacker of the group. He only has one other person living with him. But they all just invite people into their homes. If they see someone hurting, they invite them in. And that's, that's just how it works over there. And in the book of James, there's this passage that I could never understand. It always kind of bothered me until I went to Africa. And James writes this. He says, believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wildflower, for the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom fails, falls, and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away, even while they go about their business. And I read that, I've read that verse, you know, many times, and I can, I can understand, like, in heaven, you know, like a future tense to this, but, Paul, but James is writing in the present tense. He's saying right now, those who are poor in humble circumstances ought to take pride in, 
in their high position. And I understand the, the first will be last and serving, and I get, I get all that, but how, how can you take pride in, in your high position? Now? Like, what is your high position now? And it always kind of bothered me. I, I never quite understood it. And then I went to Sierra Leone, and you see people there with absolutely nothing. Okay, they're just trying, it's a dollar a day society. You know, if you have a dollar a day, you're going to eat. If you don't, you're going to miss a meal. And they, they all miss meals. And, and you see them, and then you see the joy on their faces. You see kids with the only toy they have is some old, like, tire that they're just kind of rolling around on the, on the dirt. And they're all so happy, and they're all so content. And then I come back to my nice house with a garage full of stuff that I don't even need and all this kind of stuff. And I realize, you know what? Sometimes I'm not so content. Sometimes there's other things I think I got I to steward all this stuff now. What, what am I going to do with it all? And then who is the rich man? You know what I mean? Who is the rich man then? The one who is content with nothing? Or the one who's not content and has a lot? Um, and sure, I, I want them to get better access to health care and clean water and electricity and all these things. I, I pray that they get that. But um, if you go over there and, and you think that you just have something to offer them and they don't have anything to offer you, you miss it because there's a lot we can learn. And this morning we're diving back into our study of Ephesians uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 24, and whether rich or poor, Paul talks about being somewhat being content in life and what's really important in life. So Ephesians 4, 17 through 24, and just to remind you, in the first three chapters, Ephesians 1 through 3, um, Paul's talking about how we how we live, who we are in Christ, and he, and he goes through all this information, what it means to be in Christ, and then chapters four through six, he really gets into practical living, and okay, now that you understand who you are, who Christ has saved you to be, this then is how you're supposed to live. This, is, this affects life. Um, so Paul's letter, it, it just focuses right in on the problems that you and I face in our world today and how we, how we respond to them, how we live. So let's go ahead and check it out. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 24. Paul writes, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirits of your mind and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So Paul begins this section. He says, now I, uh, this I say to you, I testify in the Lord about this. And in the Greek, it's really clear that Paul, he's, he's 
kind of resuming a thought that he had previously, that he's going back and he's, this has a resumptive force to it. In chapter, in, in chapter 4, verse 1, Paul talks about, hey, I'm a prisoner of the Lord and I'm urging you to live a life worthy of your calling. Okay, and that, that's how he kind of begins. And now he's resuming back and he's jumping back into verse 1 and kind of continuing that thought. And he's saying, hey, I want you to live a life worthy of your calling. Therefore, don't walk like the Gentiles walk. Don't live like the Gentiles live. Don't do that because that's not worthy of your calling. And it's really interesting because as Paul is writing to this Ephesian church, remember, this Ephesian church, and it's a, it's a chain letter, so the book of Ephesians isn't just to the church in Ephesus. It's circulated throughout Asia Minor. And a lot of the believers who are going to the churches there, they are Gentiles. So when he says, don't walk the way the Gentiles walk, don't live like the Gentiles live, what he's doing is he's saying, don't live the way you used to live. Because all the details that he goes through and gives, that would have been how they lived. And he's saying, no, that's not worthy of your calling anymore. You've been called to something more. You were made for more. So don't go back to that. Because this now is how you're supposed to live. Avoid your old lifestyle. This is the emphasis that he's giving. And you look at the description of the Gentile lifestyle, and it's not a pretty picture. But look where Paul begins. If you're not going to walk the way the Gentiles walk, where does he start? It starts in your mind, in the futility of your mind. He doesn't begin with actions. He goes straight to how you think, to your thought life. What, th th don't think like you used to think. You, you've got a, you, you have been saved by Jesus and he gives you new thoughts. Your, your thoughts should not be the same. We're, we're to set our, things, our minds on things above, not on the things of this earth, so that our minds can be open to the Lord, so that our moral compass can be functioning correctly, so that we have a, a standard that is right, and we, and we live that way, that we, we don't have to navigate life just by our own whims or what we think is right or what we think is good or what seems fine to us. It's not that at all. That's living life in a land of shadows. And, and Paul says, no, you have clarity now. So you must think rightly. Avoid the futility of their thinking. And so this is the fundamental issue at hand. The thinking of the Christian, the worldview of the Christian versus the worldview of the culture of the world. And Jesus taught in Luke 16, 15, that what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. And so Paul, he's just shoving this issue right in our face that we ought to see that, hey, it is impossible to love the world and love God at the same time. It's impossible to think the way the world thinks and to think the thoughts of God at the same time. It doesn't work. And so Paul says, you, you must think rightly. Because the world teaches, hey, you got to look out for number one. If you're not looking out for yourself, nobody else is going to look out for you either. And Jesus says, no, you're, you're to think of others above yourself. You know, the, the world says, hey, if somebody messes with you, if somebody treats you wrong, if somebody does evil to you, you got to get them back. You know, you should avoid them, have nothing to do with them, just say, hey, I'm going to leave them. That's, that's what the world thinks. And Christianity says, no, no, no. You go and you repay evil with good. You love your enemy. You know, the, the world says, um, 
that the squeaky wheel gets the oil. Christianity teaches the last will be first. And you go through the thinking of the world versus how the thinking of Christ, and they are direct polar opposites. But see, Paul knows this tendency that we all have, and it's to revert back to our old way of thinking. It's to think the thoughts of the world rather than the thoughts of God. And so he's writing to this church, and he's saying, don't go back to your old way of thinking. Because if you think like that, you're not going to live the life that you were made to live. This is, this is not who you are. You, you must walk worthy of your calling. And so you must think rightly about that calling, about who you are and how you're to live. Why is this thinking so futile? This is because their minds, their understanding, it's been darkened. You know, it's like, it's like you're outside and all of a sudden you see the sun and then the clouds pass by in front of the sun. All of a sudden it kind of goes dark. That's the thinking of the world. It's darkened. I mean, that, that's even what the word means. The, uh, the, the Greek word there, it means darkened. And it's in contrast to the mind of the believer, which is illumined. Right? You have this idea, it's throughout Scripture, of darkness and light, of ignorance and truth. Saying when you think the, the thoughts of the world, you're living in ignorance. It's a dark place to be. It's a cloudy place to be because everything changes. We, we're not consistent. You know, I've, I've told you this before. I don't even agree with myself all the time, right? Like, my mind changes. What, what would make me happy today might not make me happy tomorrow. What I want today, I might not want tomorrow. Why? Because we change. We're, we're, we are inconsistent. I might think one way about something today and then hear an argument, read something, and I think different about it tomorrow. We are inconsistent. We change. We're living in the shadows. God never changes. His, his word, his truth, it never changes. He is consistent. So if I live based on my thinkings, my feelings, what I think is right, what, what I enjoy, my preferences, my traditions, if I, if I live based on that, it has the tendency to change all the time because what was okay yesterday might not be okay for me tomorrow. What I wanted yesterday, I might not want tomorrow. I change. God never changes. So he's the only solid foundation by which we can build a life on. Uh, UCLA professor, he, he said that uh, religion is on decline in our country, in our society, in our world. And he said this is a hopeful sign of our times. He goes on to write this, The decline in religious feeling among civilized people is an indication that man is steadily becoming more rational and less subject to superstition and therefore less likely to kill and maim those who disagree with him. I read that and I wonder if I'm on the same planet as him. I mean, you just look back at the last century, okay? I mean, you think about it, and you've got Stalin's Russia, you've got Hitler's Germany, you've got Mao's China, you've got Kim's Korea, you've got Castro's Cuba. And, that, and then you go and you talk about genocidal slaughters in Armenia, Cambodia, Iraq, Bosnia, throughout Africa, the Philippines, and the list goes on. The, this last century was the bloodiest, most tortured century in the history of humanity. And it wasn't religious people doing it. 
I mean, to some degree, you know, there were some, but mostly it was a religious people who, who, who they don't subscribe to any religion at all, okay? I'm not, I'm not just talking about Muslims or something. Uh, no, I'm talking about no religion at all led most of this. There are more incidents of drugs, drunkenness, divorce, spousal abuse, child abuse, suicide, psych- psychiatric visits than at any other time in our history, okay, on the world. You talk about a darkness of humanity, the world is not getting better, all right? But at the same time, we in the church are the most optimistic people, the most joyous people on the face of the planet, because we realize that we've been saved and we are privileged to live in this generation, and it is a glorious generation to be alive, because the opportunities to share the gospel are so ripe. I mean, there there was a time when it was just kind of cultural, to go to church. You know, you go to church because your parents went to church, your grandparents went to church, it's the right thing to do, you go to church. I am so thankful that we live in a day and age where people who go to church want to be the church. You know, Pastor Pius, his church, they gather together and they sing, and they sing this song that we are the church. And in the song it says, the building is not the church, we are the temple of God. They're quoting scripture to themselves as they sing. And they have a right view of who they are. And we must have a right view of who we are, that God handpicked us to be his representatives in this generation. It's a glorious time to be alive in the midst of a declining world because we're that change agent. We're the people who get to come and we get to speak life to people who desperately need to know about Jesus. And if we neglect that calling and if we sit around and we complain, oh, this, the world's just going to hell. It's just terrible what's happening out there. It's never been so bad. That doesn't win anybody. That is the futility of Gentile thinking, okay? And it doesn't win anybody. We have a joy to be alive because God saved us for such a time as this. And in order to kind of live correctly, Paul says we must think correctly, We must think rightly, and he draws a definitive line from faulty thinking to faulty living and from right thinking to right living. He used to say the world's lost all sensitivity. The world's become completely calloused. Humanity is losing her ability to feel shame. They're living wrongly because they're thinking wrongly, and what happens is they pursue all these things. They think, okay, this, this will bring me peace. This will bring me joy. This will bring me excitement. And so they step out into this, and it does at first. There's there's some joy there. There's a thrill there. There's a rush there at first. But then it fades, and it's not lasting. You say, well, I need that rush again. I need that thrill again. I I, I want to feel that excitement again. And so what does humanity do? Well, we try something just a little more risky, just a little more out there so we can get that same rush that we had before. And then, and it works for a little bit, but then it fades too, so we try something a little more risky and a little more risky, and and that's the progression. And then after a while, there is no shame. I'm flying back, you know, (laughs) flying back on the airplane, and I've got uh, a couple people it's, it's a small airplane from Atlanta to Norfolk. It wasn't, you know, it was a small little jet. 
and there's two ladies sitting uh, two, three rows behind me. They are so loud. I mean, they're, they're super loud. And every other word is an F-bomb, okay? It's just, boom, and the whole plane ride is that way. And you got people, like, tell them, hey, can y'all please tone it down? And they just get louder. There's no shame. We think if we just have control, if I can control this, I can, I can create a life, I can form a life that will make me happy. If, if I can control this and I have all my preferences met and the things that I like, and I can form a life that will make me happy. We, we want control. And Jesus says, no, if you want to be happy, you got to release the control. You got to allow him to control your life and you live a life worthy of the calling you have received. It's not your calling. Like you didn't develop the calling on your life. He's called you for something. He's made you for something. He's made you for more. He's made you to be more of a missionary. And as you look at this and, you, and, and you're just watching Paul's argument and you see the ugly, twisted world that we live in, and just about the time that you want to throw in the towel and you just want to complain and say how bad things are, it's then that Paul says, okay, here's how you think rightly. Here's how you live right. Here's how you get it back. And so he uses this phrase, you did not learn Christ in this way. That phrase is without parallel. Okay, there's no other phrase like it in all of the Greek texts. There's no other phrase like it in all of pre-biblical Greek literature. Nowhere else does this phrase, to learn a person, appear. Okay, it is extremely significant because Paul is saying that Christ is the content of the teaching. Right? He's not someone merely to be welcomed into your life. He's not someone you merely invite in to do life with, uh, it, it's not that at all. That's just the tip of the iceberg. You must learn Christ. And Paul says you learned Christ. And to learn Christ is to be shaped by his teaching, to allow his rule of righteousness to govern how you live, to allow his standard and the calling that he has placed on your life to be your marching orders for then how you relate to the world, to adopt this new value system a new worldview, to change your thinking, to walk worthy of your calling, to live this real change that you've been given to be a chair for a disciple maker. You know, and we're able to live and experience this because we have a firm foundation, because our thinking can be clear. Gentile thinking, worldly thinking, is cloudy, it's muddied, everything changes, what worked yesterday may not work tomorrow. Our value system, you look at it, the value system of our country, of our world, it changes all the time. What was acceptable at one point is not acceptable today, it won't, and what's acceptable today won't be acceptable tomorrow. It's always going to change. This doesn't change. We, we live in this postmodern culture that doesn't believe in absolute truth, right? What's True for you may not be true for me. You have your truth. I have my truth. What's right for you may not be right for me. This is the way we think. But that's not how Jesus presents himself. Jesus presents himself very clearly. He says, I am the, you know, just in John, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. I mean, in the midst of a world that is desperate for absolute truth, Jesus comes along and says, I am the truth. And it is absolute. You don't, you don't have to find it. You don't have to worry. You don't have to try to 
discover it, he says, I am. The historical Jesus is the embodiment of truth. And Paul's point to the Ephesians is that by learning Christ, you have learned truth. And the truth will set you free, free from this inadequate worldly lifestyle, free to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. And so that, that's how you got to walk, out of the shadows and into the light. That, that's, where, that's where Paul is trying to move people, out of the bondage into freedom, to experience the hope and the joy that comes with living a life in Jesus. And Paul says in order to do that, he says the first thing you have to do is to put off the old self. To put off the old self. And you read through this, and you look at the thinking of the old self, and you look at the, the actions of the old self, and the lifestyle of the old self, and you're reading through that as Paul describes it. And you're probably thinking, why doesn't Paul just tell you to like kill it, right? I mean, just be done with it. Kill that old self. I don't want it to have any life whatsoever. Well, the reason why he doesn't say kill it is because the old self's already dead. It's been crucified with Jesus on the cross. So to live and to think with that old mindset, with that worldly mindset, is to put on this dead weight, is to think dead thoughts. And so Paul says, no, you, you just got to put it off. Don't, don't think that way anymore. And then there's this next imperative in there. First, you, you put off all this stuff. And then the next imperative, that sometimes it's, it's missed, because we, we like to jump from put off to put on, but there's something in the middle. He says, renew your mind. Did you catch that? That you have to renew your thinking. So I have to learn Christ. I have to be in the scriptures. I have to learn to think the thoughts of Jesus. I have, to, I have to learn what my calling is, what my reason for being is, what, why I'm here. I, I don't just come up with that willy-nilly on my own. He, he sets the standard. He guides how I live. And so th this emphasizes the constant struggle for the believer because we sometimes, our natural inclination is just to revert back to the way we used to think and then try to spruce it up a little bit. Think, well, okay, I can identify these sins, right? I know, okay, getting drunk, that's not good. I'm not going to do that. Sleeping around, that's not good. I'm not going to do that. Cursing, yelling at people, you know, whatever it may be, gossip. I know that's not good. I kind of get that from the church. I'm not going to do that. But then there's this whole other side. Well, what are you going to do? How are you going to think? What, what is your reason for being? Why are you on planet Earth to begin with anyway? And that takes time studying the scriptures and knowing who you are and who God has made you to be and how he has gifted you and how he, the talents that you have and your personality and how he wants to use you to impact this generation. Because he saved all of you with a purpose, with a calling. And it's a privilege to be able to be the representatives for Jesus. And so we have to think rightly. We, we have to, our, our eyes need to be open. We need to be transformed by the truth. And then, after you're thinking rightly, the third imperative is to put on the new self. 
It's now to live the life. In Hebrews, it says, hey, haven't you graduated from milk? I mean, by this time, you should be craving solid food, right? You You should be going to the deep things of the Lord. And then if you read that passage, I encourage you, go home, find that passage, and you read it. And he talks about what milk is, okay? He, he talks about the food for the, for the infant Christian. And you know the food for the infant Christian is all like basic doctrine, right? The, the birth, the resurrection of Jesus, praying, uh, end time stuff, eschatology, all that, he says, that's shallow. That's milk. You know what he says solid food is? You know what he says depth is? Living it. Actually loving your enemy. Actually going out and and evangelizing. Actually being a chair for a disciple. He says that's what depth is. That's what solid food is. He says, but until you're living it, you you can think right. I mean, you can be like the Bible trivia master. But until you live it, he says, you're an infant. You're still, you're still drinking milk. Until, until you're discipling your neighbors, right? Until, until you're sharing Jesus with people who you work with. Until you're, until you're sharing Jesus with people on sports teams of your kids or wherever you go playing bingo or going bowling or whatever it is, whatever activities you've got. Until you actually take Jesus to wherever you live, work, study, and play, you're just drinking milk. And he's, that's, that's, that's not what you were made for. You, you were made to grow. You're, you're made to bring this joy and this excitement and this passion of knowing Jesus to wherever you live. Because it's the only hope of the world. In Sierra Leone, one, uh, one evening, there's a medical hospital over there. The healthcare over there is, is really rough. You go to hospitals and there's no AC, there's used mattresses, um, you know, there's no like adjustable mattresses or anything like that. They're used mattresses from other countries that other countries have said these are no good anymore and they've taken them and said, okay, we'll use them in our hospitals for a patient to lay on. There's flies all, all in there and um, it's just rough. One evening, I got to go to a, a hospital that was started by um, a medical missionary from Switzerland. And it was an incredible thing. There was about 15 of us there, and we were just talking about um, life in Sierra Leone and how we can share Jesus with these people and praying and this kind of thing. We're having dinner together, and in that group of 15 people, you had people from Europe, people from South America, people from Africa, people from North America, and people from Asia. Okay, 15 of us, and you have every continent represented except for Australia and Antarctica. It was uh, a beautiful picture of God's church, I think. And the, the man who started the hospital, he started it over 30 years ago, and he, he just shared the story of how he's a physical therapist. He was invited to go to Sierra Leone and, and do some medical work over there, and so he went. And he saw the plight of the people. 
And he came back and he thought, I, I've got to do something. Like, here, here are the skills I have. I've got to do something. I can't do nothing. But he didn't know what it was that he should do. And he's talking to his wife and he's talking to friends. And one of his friends says, well, if medical care is so poor in that country, you should start a hospital. And he said, I'm a, I'm a physical therapist. I'm not a doctor. How am I supposed to start a hospital? And his friend says, oh, God will show you. You know, you just, you need to start a hospital. And he said, well, I don't have that much money. Like, I can't just go and start a hospital. And he's like, and so he's talking with his wife. And he's like, all right, here's the deal. I'm going to pray. This was October. I'm going to pray for the next um, year and three months, 15 months. And if in that time I can raise $100,000, then I will start the hospital because I know this is what God wants me to do. But if I can't raise the money, I, I don't know how I'd be able to start the hospital. So let's just pray. So he and his wife, they come into praying every day. And at the beginning of it, he's making flyers and he's doing things with the people he's doing physical therapy with. And he's telling them about it and he's trying to raise money. And for the first year, he raised $100. And so it was, the, it was the end of the year, and he tells his wife, this, we, we got $100, and, and we need to raise $100,000 even, even to get this project started. It, it doesn't look like God's going to answer this prayer. And so he stopped doing any kind of recruiting, any, trying to, any, any means to make more money. But his wife said, hey, we said that we were going to pray for 15 months, so let's just continue to pray for these next three months and see what happens. So they continue to pray, and um, with one month to go, exactly one month to go, he, he got home from his job that afternoon, and his wife said, this is just a great day. He says, why? What's so special about today? And she pointed to an envelope on his dinner plate and said, you need to open that. And he opened it up, and it was a check for $100,000. And he said there's been so many times since where he thought, I'm going I'm to have to close this. There's, I, don't, I don't have the, the resources to keep this hospital going. And he says, and just when I'm ready to pull the plug and, and say we've got to close, a check will come in and the hospital keeps on going. It's a special hospital because everyone who's treated there, a pastor will come by and read the scriptures to them and pray with them and share Jesus with them. You know, this is a man, he's just a, he's just a physical therapist, right? It, he's not some kind of pastor, he's not an evangelist, he's nothing like that. He just saw a need and said, I can't do nothing. I must do something. It's much like the people who started the Bridge of Hope. It's a couple. The, um, he is a fireman and she is, works in the financial world. They were invited by their pastor to go over to Sierra Leone, and this was, um, this was right after the war in the early 2000s, and they see this place, and it's a, it's a hard place, it's a rough place, very difficult for women. Um, and after 10 years of no education, you know, no, nobody, I mean, illiteracy is sky high, and they go over there, and they say the same thing a firefighter and a financial banker, and they say, we must do something. We can't do nothing. So they begin to pray, and they started the Bridge of Hope to train pastors, to reach their villages, and to provide education for kids 
so that perhaps the next generation can be different than the previous generation, so they can see signs of hope. One of those signs of hope is another friend of mine named Daniel. And Daniel, uh, last time I was there, he, I'm talking with him at the end of one night, and I just asked him, hey, Daniel, can you share with me your story? He says, yes, Pastor Steve, I'd be happy to. And he told me about growing up in this remote Muslim village. Muslim is the, um, Islam, the prim- primary religion in Sierra Leone. And the only way to get to that village, you've got to take um, a canoe back in there. It's kind of rough. And he says, I, I grew up in this village, and then when I was about 12, both my parents died. And so I was taken out of the village to the city, and there I was connected with the Bridge of Hope. I met the Bridge of Hope, and they allowed me to live on the compound. And so I lived on their compound and was raised, and he said, and I believe that I'm the first Christian ever from my village. And, you know, hearing that, when, when have you ever met somebody who's the first Christian from, like, the place where they live? It's incredible. And so I asked him, well, Daniel, what, what do you pray for? You know, when you pray, what do you pray for? And this was at the time of their presidential elections in Sierra Leone. And if any country needs a good leader, it's Sierra Leone. And he tells me, you know, the thing I pray for every night is that one day there will be a church in my village. See, Daniel recognizes what Sierra Leone needs most, what America needs most, what our world needs most, is not just a good president. That's helpful, okay? It's, you know, governing and laws, that, that's important. But what we need most is Jesus. And he recognized that. And so this time when I go, when I returned, he pulled me aside and he says, hey, and in fact, when I first saw him, I gave him a big hug and said, Daniel, I've been praying that there will be a church in your village. And he said, thank you so much. And later that week, he pulls me aside and said, Pastor Steve, I'd like to talk to you again. I said, yeah, absolutely. And so we're talking, and then he eventually, um, he says, you know, I've, I've been back to my village a couple times. I've met with the chief there, and he's agreed that it would be good to have a church in our village. I said, wow, that's, that's incredible. And I saw Daniel. He got up and he shared his testimony. And right in front of him, like the front row, was this whole group of Muslims. And he's sharing his testimony about how he was a Muslim and then how he came to Christ. And it's the best thing that's ever happened to his life and the change that Jesus has brought about in his life. And he's speaking directly to Muslims right in the front row. The chief is a Muslim and he turns and he looks at the Bridge of Hope and he, his jaw is like to the floor. He can't believe what he's hearing. And I'm, I'm seeing this faith and this boldness and this, this just deep desire that his people would know Jesus. And he says to me, Steve, um, I need your help starting a church in that village. And my immediate thought was, I don't know how to do that, Daniel. Like, I can pray. That's about all I can do. And I said, well, Daniel, let's, let's just pray about that. So I prayed. And we, we prayed together. And as I was praying, it was, it was as if God just said, Steve, why don't you just challenge the pastors to take a mission trip to that village? 
So I didn't, think, I didn't say anything to Daniel at the time. I went back to Pastor Micah. I said, Pastor Micah, what, what do you think about taking a mission trip to Daniel's village? It's a Muslim village. He's the first Christian. He says, oh, I know. I know the village well. He's like, that is a great idea. He's like, I always wanted to be a missionary. He's like, you people come from America, and I see your faith and how you love people. He's like, and I always wanted to be able to do that, but I always thought that, you know, living in Sierra Leone, I'd never be able to be a missionary. He's like, and now you've given me a vision for being a missionary. So I said, all right, well, what, what, let's plan this out. What are we going to do? And I was like, maybe we can aim for next year. He's like, no, we're going this year. I was like, all right. He's like, and we have to go before the rainy season hits because then it would be too difficult to get to, so we have to get there by April. I'm like, all right. And we planned it out. And so these pastors who live on a dollar a day have next to nothing they're taking a trip to this remote village, all Muslim village, just to share Jesus with people because they love those people and they want them to know Jesus. And so then the question comes to us. Who is it that we know that kind of keeps us up at night because they don't know Jesus? You know, when, when we pray, who, who are we praying for that, because they need Jesus more than they need their next breath? Who are the people in your life who you are so desperate to take the gospel to? Because that's your calling. See, you were made to, for more. You were made to be more of a missionary. That, that, that's who you are in Jesus. Live a life worthy of your calling. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the calling that we've received. I thank you that you didn't just save us for heaven and we're not just waiting around until we get there, but that you've given us purpose and a reason for being now. And God, there's such joy in that. There's such excitement in being able to share Jesus with people who need it. And so God, I pray for my friends over in Sierra Leone. I pray for Pastor Micah, for Pastor Pius, for, for Daniel. And as they get ready to take a mission trip to this small Muslim village, uh, God, I, I pray that there will be a church in that village. And God, I pray for your church that we would be pleasing in your sight, that we would take the calling that we have received um, with great joy and that we would live it for your glory. We ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and through the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.